Welcome to this Maples Group Tax and Coffee podcast, a series where we discuss EU and international tax developments. I'm Andrew Quinn, I'm Head of Tax at Maples Group, and I'm joined by David Burke from our Irish law firm. We're going to discuss the EU Global Minimum Tax Directive and consider its impact on investment fund structures. So look, a quick background on the global minimum tax. This came out of the OECD base erosion and profit shifting process, which was commissioned by the G7 group of countries. It is a global initiative, but within the EU, the measures are being brought in by EU legislation, and that is the EU Global Minimum Tax Directive. And like all EU directives, the process is that that is implemented into national law by each member state consistent with the terms of the directive. So, David, how is that being implemented in Ireland? Well, implementation sort of started off in earnest when the OECD model rules themselves were published in December 2021. Uh, And at the same time, the draft EU directive was published, which largely followed those OECD sort of global rules. And the directive was then approved by the member states a year later in December 2022. And in in terms of Ireland, the Department of Finance published their feedback statement earlier this year in March, and another one just a week ago, with a view to getting stakeholder input on the draft legislation they published so that it's tweaked in time for September 2023, when we expect the finance bill to come out. And then the idea would be on the 31st of December 2023, the legislation would then be in force in Ireland. So right around the corner, and of course the process and timing is the same all across the European Union. When you run through that there, David, I mean, look, the implementation of this in the EU and globally has been very, very fast. You know, there were commentators saying that this global minimum tax never had any chance of being implemented. Even in the EU, there were certain member states that didn't support it initially. Hungary, for example, was one of the countries to to hold out. But eventually, as you say, the deal was done right around December last year, 2022. So in addition to the EU, many other big countries around the world are implementing the global minimum tax, the UK, South Korea, Switzerland, and others. Not the US as yet, but some of the traditionally low-tax jurisdictions uh, have also announced that they will be introducing the global minimum tax. For example, Bermuda, Jersey, Guernsey, and the Isle of Man. So David, who does this global minimum tax affect? Well, high level, it just applies to groups with an annual turnover revenues of at least 750 million euros. And group for this purpose is consolidated group for accounting purposes, although in some cases it could include groups that are uh, of entities that are related through ownership or control, but not consolidated, uh, or, or rather they, they should be consolidated according to acceptable financial accounting standards. Generally, so so accounting is important, So it, it, and, and it's also subject to change and in interpretation, so that needs to be uh, borne in mind. Generally, it's cross-border groups, But in the EU, it could be a solely domestic group. This is because of the sort of EU freedom of establishment requires that, and Ireland is likely to introduce that provision. So uh, headline, it's, it's international groups. 
consolidated for accounting with revenues of over 750 million. Andrew. Thanks, David. So here's the science bit, and this is how the global minimum tax directive in the EU, but uh, more, more broadly, of course, through the OECD, here's how it operates. The objective is to make sure that those large groups that David described will pay at least 15% tax on their profits in every country in which they operate. Okay. Now, of course, the G7, the OECD, the EU can't go out and make sure that every country in the world imposes tax to that level. So the way that is achieved is basically to say that if your group has a legal entity in any country that has implemented these rules, then effectively the whole group will be subject to that 15% tax. So that's the way it works. Very complicated set of interlocking rules. The income inclusion rule, undertaxed profits rule, the qualified domestic top-up tax. But in essence, they're all aimed at achieving the same thing. And if I can give an example, a very simple example, let's say you have three companies in your structure. A US parent entity, an Irish subsidiary, and let's say an affiliate subsidiary, which is in a low tax or zero tax jurisdiction. So the way the EU directive works is because that group has a foothold in the EU, that Irish company will be taxed not just on its own profits, but also the profits of that US entity and the profits of that zero tax entity assuming they don't pay tax at the level of the 15% rate. So that's the basis behind the tax directive. So let's move on now to consider investment funds and, most importantly, the safe harbour that exists within the directive. The directive carves out certain industries. For example, the international shipping industry is largely carved out of the effect of these rules. And so too are investment funds, assuming they fall within the definition in the directive. So why that safe harbour? Well, it's long been accepted and recognised by governments and by the OECD that investment funds should be tax-neutral vehicles. And the reason for that, of course, is not to impose a double layer of tax on the investors. So to give a basic example there, if I invest, uh, I'm taxed on the profits. If David invests, he's taxed on his profits. But let's say the two of us pool our money together. We invest um, through an investment fund entity. That investment fund entity shouldn't impose an extra layer of tax on that income. And as I say, that principle has been long recognised. And, you know, if you look around the world at anywhere where an investment fund entity is set up, be it somewhere like Ireland, the US, Germany, France, or in a traditionally low tax jurisdiction, that same principle applies. The fund entity is most generally not subject itself to tax. So David, how does that translate in the directive? Well, that translates into the directive through uh, the definition of an investment fund, you know, which is an excluded entity, provided it is um, meets these conditions. It has to be an entity designed to pool assets, which the example you've 
given it certainly is. It's got a number of investors, some of which are not connected. So it can't just be one or small group of investors. It's got to be subject to a regulatory regime in the jurisdiction in which it is established. It must be managed by investment fund professionals. And importantly, it has to be, to be excluded, it has to be the ultimate parent entity of the group in scope. So that may be fine, but there's a lot of funds or entities that would describe themselves as funds that are just middle tier entities in the general fund structure which may not be the ultimate parent entity and wouldn't be excluded, you know, un- un- unless unless another another exemption applies. And th- those other exemptions include, you know, governmental entities, which are thought to include sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, real estate investment vehicles that are an ultimate parent entity, and also asset holding entities that are held as to 95% by another excluded entity, such as an investment fund, provided that investment fund is, you know, an ultimate parent entity. So that's that, that's kind of the, the, the main exemptions. And if, if I may, I'll just mention one other quite important uh, exemption, not necessarily in connection with funds necessarily, uh, but it could apply to funds, is, is the sort of five-year exclusion from the rules for uh, groups that are just starting their international growth. It's it's a, if if a if a group is in the first five years of its international activity, then it's excluded, and that is actually defined as being when it's in less than six jurisdictions, and sometimes it's called the rule of six, and the tangible assets outside the main jurisdiction of the group is uh, less than fifty million euros. So that provides a, an important sort of uh, breather. For, for those 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 groups just starting off in in life, uh, but but also other other groups um, during the first few years of these rules. Great, thanks, David. So I suppose turning to what investment fund structures may be in scope. Again, that definition that David has gone through is quite broad, but of course the devil is in the detail. So we're talking about structures that are consolidated are that should be consolidated because of the control that exists and that have that large euro 750 million per annum turnover so let's assume that that is the case you know the most obvious example going back to that legal definition in the directive would be a closely held fund so there is a requirement that there are a number of investors some of whom are not connected. If you had, for example, a wealthy family office holding their investments through a fund structure, and that is not uncommon, the fund structure would give that family perhaps, uh, you know, good governance, maybe a regulatory oversight to their investments. You would not expect that those family members would be regarded as unconnected for the purpose of the rules. Or in the business arena, it is certainly Uh, the case that large multinational companies can hold their investments through a fund structure. The insurance sector, for example, is a good example of that. And again, you would probably not expect that that single corporate holder would be uh, regarded as, as again, a, a, a fund where there are a number of investors. David, moving on, I suppose, to the next part of the definition, the regulatory regime. Yeah, I mean, that's that's another you know, condition which 
uh, you know, which reasonable minds can differ as to whether a, a, a regulatory regime is 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 a suitable one which applies to the to the funding question. Um, there are different uh, levels of regulation, different jurisdictions. Yeah, and and you know, certainly in Ireland, I've seen quite lively debate there as to how the Irish authorities would judge that, how they would judge, I suppose, in particular, a regulatory regime of the fund or, or of its manager, where that's outside the EU. So that's certainly one for discussion. You know, absolutely, if the fund or manager is not regulated, it's in scope. But even then, there is there is a question there of testing the regulatory regime at the very least. What other examples then, David, might might come in scope? Well, we're, we're considering sort of a, maybe a private equity fund that holds a, a portfolio of, of, of companies or groups of companies, which it, it, it consolidates. I mean, it may hold those through a, through a, a stacked series of, of, of companies and holding companies and, and what we, they would describe as funds. But those, those middle tier entities may not be regarded as, you know, asset holding companies for the purposes of the rules because they themselves are involved in in an active operating business or they may not themselves be the ultimate parent entity of a consolidated group so they're you know they're not entitled to the investment fund exemption or there may be some co-investment structure whereby you know any of those middle tier or fund entities um, are not held as to 95% by the ultimate parent entity in the group. Very common. So there's a number of, I would say, reasons why you know entities within a group structure or multi-layered fund structure might slip outside the very specific excluded entity definitions that we have. Yeah, I agree with that, David. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've even seen debate, and this was part of the submissions that were made to the OECD, by various fund organizations that, yeah, absolutely, the, the operating business owned by the private equity firm is certainly not, you you would say, an asset holding company, but uh, even active, um, let's call them uh, companies within a classic fund structure, actively managing assets, you know, query, are they also asset holding companies? So one other case we're coming across in practice, and it is subject to much discussion as well, is the not uncommon uh, case where you would have a large uh, single investor uh, alongside others in an investment fund and that large investor has a controlling interest in the investment fund so more than 50% again not an uncommon situation often a fund will start life with an important seed investor so if that investor consolidates the underlying investment fund that means automatically that the investment fund is no longer an exempted entity. Because you recall that a, a investment fund to be an exempted entity must be the ultimate parent entity in the group, the UPE. And because the investor is, the investment fund will not be. So certainly that investor may be subject to a top-up tax, probably under the income, income inclusion rule, in its home jurisdiction. Now, how does that affect the fund? Well, the fund, of course, may be in the same jurisdiction as that uh, investor. If not, this is where it gets quite complicated because even though the investment fund is not an exempted entity, it would still probably be regarded as an investment entity and an investment entity is carved out of some of the top-up taxes. 
So, for example, the income inclusion rule as it applies to what's called an intermediate parent entity in the group, and also the undertaxed profits rule, the UTPR. But the investment entity could still be caught by the other top-up tax, the QDMTT, the Qualified Domestic Minimum Top-Up Tax, if a jurisdiction in question had effectively dictated that that would be the case. So that'll depend on the on the jurisdiction in question. So certainly needs to be analysed where you have that scenario. I think just one uh, or two final thoughts then on, on cases where investment funds may still be within scope of the rules. David, you and I were discussing the definitions and the requirement that um, to be a investment fund for the purpose of the rules, the investment fund must pool assets. Again, I've seen debate to say, well, what does that mean? For example, if an investment fund, a private equity fund, held one large portfolio company, so one large multinational group as its as its investment, would it then be said to pool assets? Probably not on its face. And then the last scenario that I wanted to mention, and again, it's certainly something that comes up in practice, is a investment structure that is, I guess, commercially called an investment fund structure, but really it's a corporate group. So it's a probably a privately owned parent entity with a number of investors. But again, the parent entity, which is part of a consolidated group, just isn't an investment fund, so doesn't meet those definitions that we went through earlier. So again, that, that structure would have to be looked at. So look, you know, there's a few examples that we've come across either through discussions at industry level or in practice. I think that the takeaway from that is that it is necessary to have a look at existing fund structures before the 31st of December uh, this year to consider those um, rules when putting in place a new fund structure. You know, to go through this in a methodical fashion, is it a large fund structure? Firstly, of course, is it, is it going to be potentially over the turnover figure immediately or in a few years' time? Is is it consolidated or should it be consolidated? And then going through the um, various definitions and safe harbours and seeing if they apply. You know, it's certainly something we're seeing come up in terms of questions from investors it's something we're seeing starting from the audit letters which come in from the accountants at the end of the year when they are doing their their audit. And indeed, it's finding its way into legal documentation now. For example, uh, funds are looking to investors to give a representation that they will not be consolidating the entity because, of course, that can bring the entity within scope, as David described. We're seeing uh, disclosure language in fund prospectuses as well. So with that, I'd like to finish up and thank you, David, for joining us today. That was a great discussion about the EU directive uh, just around the corner, of course, and there's a lot in it and a lot to be uh, considered. Uh, And to thank everybody out there for joining us. We have more tax and coffee podcast coming so please keep an eye on spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and with that uh, thanks again and see you soon